I've entitled my thoughts this morning, Growing in Trials, Growing in Trials. This past week, we released a video that I would like to take a little bit of time this morning with you and expand on the subject from that video. We produced a video that was made from some footage that we shot back in the fall. And if you follow us on social media, you know that every month or two we release another one of these as we have about 30 or 40 minutes worth of content. And we basically just try to answer questions that might be pressing on your mind. This video that we released is under five minutes long, and it was about the things that we can learn in trials and that we can learn in affliction. And so I would encourage you to make use of that and share it with people, especially if you know someone who's going through a difficult time, because during our trials and our moments of affliction and suffering, we can actually learn many things and we can grow in the Lord. We'll use a passage to begin our thoughts this morning from 2 Peter chapter 3. In fact, it's the closing passage of 2 Peter chapter 3. And we'll use this just as a way to lay a foundation for the thoughts that we want to share with you. The Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, in verse 18, "...but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen." 2 Peter 3.18 exhorts us to grow. Grow is a good word. We ought to grow as individuals. We ought to grow as churches. It ought to be our desire as a church body to grow numerically, but we know that we won't really grow numerically if we don't grow individually and personally. One catalyst for personal growth as an individual is affliction, or if you will, the trials that we experience in our life. Most of us do whatever we can to avoid pain or suffering. In my house, there is a cabinet in the kitchen. In that cabinet is, uh, are two different tubs, each tub full of little plastic bottles full of pills. And we have pills that take away headaches, pills that take away stomach aches, pills that take away acid problems, Pills that take away pain that is, are far beyond the pills that you get over the counter, things that we got from prescriptions, and I'm the type of guy, if we ever have an illness and we get a prescription, if we're done taking those, I keep them in case something bad happens and I have no access to them. And so in that, no, don't come in my house looking for my pills, okay? <laughs> but in that cabinet, you have all kinds of pain relievers. And you have different types. You have Tylenol, which to me, I don't actually think does anything, but they say it does and they market it as such. And then you have naproxen and you have ibuprofen, you have aspirin, and then you have baby aspirin, because for those that don't need a full dose, you take the baby aspirin instead. And you have things such as Zantac and Prilosec and vitamins to keep you in shape so you don't feel bad. And then all kinds of other things from throat spray to sinus sprays to all sorts of other things. Every single one of those exists to take away the pain that you and I might experience. I say that as a funny story to begin with, 
Because you and I certainly do all that we can do to avoid pain. We do not like pain. We do not like suffering unless something be abnormal about us. We do everything that we can to avoid pain and to avoid suffering. Why is that? Well, simply put, it hurts. It's an unpleasant feeling. Whether you're talking about emotional pain or physical pain, it simply hurts. And so we do everything we can to avoid it. We don't want to experience embarrassment or rejection. It's a type of pain. It's an unpleasant experience. Are there things we can learn in embarrassment? There absolutely are. And we'll talk about that a little bit today. As a young child, I was very awkward in the things that I would say and do publicly. And it doesn't take but being laughed at several times by your peers to realize maybe that's not a good idea to act that way in front of people in public. People laugh you to scorn and suddenly you change your behavior. Well, that teaches you. We learn through embarrassment. We learn through rejection. We don't want to feel emotional or physical pain or suffering. We do all that we can to preserve our lives without such because, again, pain is unpleasant. But pain is actually a response that's given to us as far as physical pain to teach us. We kind of live in a day where we don't want our children to skin their knees or fall on the playground or get hurt. But I'm going to tell you, when I was a little kid, only the fittest survived life on the playground. We had these monkey bars, and you climbed up on them, and they were tall enough. If you fell on them, you could break an arm, and woe unto the poor soul that's under you that you land on. You had swings that weren't these little seven-foot-tall swings. They were like 12 feet tall, and if you had enough core strength... Well, you could propel yourself 20 feet through the air from those things. So many times as little kids on the playground, kids would get skinned knees and busted noses. And honestly, that was the best thing that could have happened for us because it taught us things. If you live in a risky way, you will eventually injure yourself. And the pain you experience when you injure yourself is designed. It is given to you as a gift to keep you from doing that thing again. There's a, there's a funny meme I'm going to borrow taken from the language of a, a very popular sitcom. I ask myself if it would cause me pain, and if it does, then I do not do that thing. If it hurts, we don't do it. It's kind of like the service engine soon light or the diagnostic on your car. When you take the Tylenol, it's kind of like unplugging the light. But when you hurt, it's your body telling you, Something is wrong, whether an injury, whether you're injuring yourself. Pain is a gift that's given to us so we learn not to destroy ourselves. People who don't experience pain end up doing great damage to their bodies because they don't get the warning before they do something catastrophic that you're about to kill your fool self, stop what you're doing. But we know that pain is given to us as a way to help us and guide us. We learn from it. Kids fall and they skin their knees, they learn to be more careful. They fall out of a tree and break a bone, they learn either to hold on tighter or not get that high. And I think that we've probably all experienced varying degrees of that growing up. Today I want to focus more deeply on the subject of affliction and pain and suffering with the question in mind, is there anything that we can learn from our afflictions? 
Just to give you some groundwork as we begin this morning, because it wouldn't be proper to talk about suffering and affliction without talking about the roots of suffering and affliction, because this isn't a pulpit where we hear 10-step programs to fix our lives or to have a better life. This is a pulpit for gospel preaching, and we share the Word of God with you, not the ideas or the philosophies of men. So from the Bible, why does suffering exist? Well, the first thing that you should understand is that all suffering exists in the world because of the transgression of Adam, our father, in the Garden of Eden at the beginning of time. Every bit of suffering. When God created the world in the beginning of time, turning back to the book of Genesis just for a moment, God looks at everything that he made. Oh, he made light and he made darkness. He made the earth. He made the heavens. He created time. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. God created everything there was. He creates the grass. He creates the water. He creates the dry ground. He creates the bird and the fish and the beast and the creeping thing. And lastly, God creates mankind. God looks at everything that he had made... Verse 31 of Genesis chapter 1, and behold, it was very good. Every time God created something, the words are recorded, God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. And when he looks at all creation, the entire universe, and everything that he made on this planet full of life, of all sorts, he says, everything that I have made is not only good, but very good. God makes a perfect world, a world with no suffering, a world with no loss, a world without pandemics, a world without cancers, without dementia, without accidents and injuries and crime, a world without emotional pain, a world without embarrassment, for they were naked and they were not ashamed. It was in every way a paradise. What a wonderful thing it must have been to be there. Greater than all of that, prior to Adam transgressing God's law, God personally fellowshiped with Adam. As Adam walks in the garden in the cool of the day, who is there speaking with him? God. Face to face, First-hand, personal, intimate fellowship with God. How remarkable life must have been in the Garden of Eden. By the way, there's coming a day in which every single heir of promise, a people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue, redeemed by Christ, will be with Christ in a place better than the Garden of Eden. It will be more glorious It will be more grand. It will be more blissful because instead of being natural, innocent creations made in his image, but unaware of the full depth of his mercy and grace, we will be redeemed people conformed to the image of Christ after having been resurrected in his image and we will be with him forevermore in a place without pain and sorrow and tears and death. No more goodbyes, no more crying, no more afflictions, no more struggle. 
And we will look back on this time because we will know what Christ has saved us from. And we will say that the sufferings of this world are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us in that day. God makes a perfect paradise. And here comes Adam. You know the story, when we say story, we don't mean that as a word of fiction, but the account, the biblical narrative. Satan, that old serpent, the devil, beguiles Adam's wife Eve to do the one thing that God told them not to do. You can eat of everything, but of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're not allowed to eat of it. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Satan beguiles Eve. She eats. Gifts to Adam. He does eat. He was not beguiled. According to Paul in the New Testament, he willingly chose to violate God's law. When Adam violated God's law, he in that instant became a sinner bound for death. The wages of sin is death. And we know without the redemption of Christ, the second death is eternity in the lake of fire. Understand the severe consequences of rebellion to God. Adam ruins God's perfect creation. As Adam sins, first of all, death entered into the world through sin, according to Romans chapter 5. And so Adam now dies. The process of death is one where your body breaks down and wears down, and eventually it just gives up. It ceases to function. Early humanity took far longer to die than modern humanity. Why? Because the gene pool was far more pristine and perfect. Generation after generation goes by and the lifespan of humanity began to decrease and decrease. And so we have today what David observes, three score and ten and perhaps 80 years by reason of strength of the man or the woman. If you get beyond that, you are as they say, on borrowed time, because we live three score and ten and perhaps eighty, and beyond that, you are a testimony of human strength and God's providence. Not only does Adam plunge humanity into sin, which causes death and chaos and destruction, but God places a curse upon Adam, a curse upon Eve, a curse upon Satan, and even a curse upon the ground. Adam is cursed in that he will live his life working to eat by the sweat of his face. Life would be difficult. Eve's sorrow and conception was increased, and her desire shall be to her husband. Satan would spend his days before his eternal punishment, crawling on the ground, as it were, eating dust for his meat, And the ground is cursed, thorns and thistles shall it bring forth. Thorns and thistles represent every negative thing there is to experience in this world. Plagues and sicknesses and aches and pains, things that are unprofitable, undesirable, that you spend your entire existence trying to weed out of your immediate surroundings. Isn't it amazing how hard it is to grow crops that you want to have compared to how easy it is for weeds to grow without any effort. 
How nice would it be if gardening was as easy as cultivating crabgrass and thistle? I think that's one of the great proofs of creation and the truthfulness of the Word of God, how easy it is for undesirable things to grow as opposed to things that you actually want in your garden. We're so separated from that as Americans today because we go to Publix and we get our food. And we think, well, I know where to get food. You get food from Publix, but you get food from the ground. We recently talked about a great famine that was in the Old Testament on Wednesday night from the book of Joel, a a season of four different famines from insects and how they completely ate every bit of green off the ground. And so even the animals did lament and wonder with great astonishment at the lack of food. We get food from the ground and it's difficult to grow and things such as famines affect us. Even in our wealthy, pampered, separated society, we are not great enough that it doesn't affect us. If anything, that the last... 14 months have taught us we're not immune from suffering, even in mighty America. All suffering comes from the root of Adam's transgression, every bit of it, every bit of it. But there are many other causes, you might say, under that umbrella of suffering in the world. We suffer sometimes because of the choices that we make. This is a statement that we'll make a couple of times along these points. Sin does not exist in a vacuum. And there's no such thing as a victimless crime. That's often said today, if it's a victimless crime, it shouldn't be crime at all. We should only punish things that hurt other people. And that, whether we realize it or not, comes from hedonism. There are things that don't hurt other people that offend God. And if it offends God, whether it hurts other people or not, well, it is wrong. The fact of the matter is, it does hurt other people. It hurts the person that does it. There are always victims in a crime, even if that victim is yourself. Sometimes we suffer because of our choices. There's a principle that's contained all through the Word of God. We reap what we sow. What you plant is what you're going to harvest. The way that it's often described in today's time is, well, that's just karma. But karma comes from an Asian, an Eastern religion, a religion from the other side of the world, and it shouldn't ever have a place in the verbiage, the vocabulary of a Christian. We don't believe in karma. We believe in God that causes us to reap what we sow. And there's a great difference in those two concepts. Karma is some invisible fate in the world that causes things to fall out the way that they do. And so if I steal, someone steals from me. But the Word of God teaches that you reap what you sow, and whatever you sow is what you will reap. If I plant in my backyard corn, I expect a harvest of corn. If I sow in my backyard thistles and crabgrass, I expect to sow thistles and crabgrass. There's a direct result from what I plant in my life. Whatever I do, the consequences of that are going to be certain. Now, in my personal life, you know, my grandparents grew up in a day when everyone smoked cigarettes. And I mean everyone. That's less and less common in the world today because of the damaging health effects of smoking cigarettes. 
When I was a little boy, every single male family member that I was ever around smoked cigarettes every day, all day. Some of you probably did, and you've, you've worked for years to stop and remain st- uh, stopped, quit, because it's, it's very hard to quit smoking cigarettes. Every one of my uncles, one of my grandmothers, and both of my grandfathers and my step-grandfather all smoke cigarettes all day, every day. So guess what little eighth grade Ben does when he goes to school and his buddies are smoking behind the art building at band because it was where the cool kids would go? Well, he picks up a Marlboro Red and hacks up a lung and it became something that was what I did because... Why not? Every man that I'd ever known has done that the entire time that I've known them. The front yard's littered with cigarette butts. You know, of all the people that live in my family, that lived in my family who smoked, who were my age when I was a little boy, grandparents and such, two of them have died from lung cancer. My grandmother, at 62 in the year 2000, my mom's father who smoked a pack a day every day the whole time I knew him, died at 71 of lung cancer in 2011. And my grandmother, who died of lung cancer, her husband, my dad's stepdad, died after a heart procedure, the heart procedure probably resulting in a life of smoking cigarettes. Why give you that long story? There's a direct correlation with our choices each and every day and the suffering that we sometimes experience. Sometimes we live in a way where we bring suffering on ourselves because of choices that we make. We sometimes suffer because of our choices. If I'm running 140 on the interstate and I wreck and I find myself two weeks later waking up in the hospital in a full body cast, I shouldn't sit around going, you know, why did this happen to me? Well, it began with the right foot on the accelerator in the car that'll run every bit of 160 miles an hour on the interstate. I reaped what I sowed. And I shouldn't sit around wondering, well, why are these terrible things happening to me if I'm sitting there causing the problem to happen that resulted in my suffering? Sometimes we suffer because of our choices. Along those lines, similar to that, sometimes we suffer divine chastening because God has standards for his children. Just like any good parent, when we sin and disobey God, God will chasten us the way a good parent chastens his children. And by the way, if you didn't realize this from the book of Proverbs, if a parent spares the rod, most of you would finish that statement by saying he, what, spoils his child? Spare the rod and spoil the child. You know the word actually is hate? A man that spares the rod hates his child because he raises a child that's unable to understand the difference between good and evil. He has no sense of morality. He has no sense of if I do this that is bad, something negative will happen to me. He lives a life without consequences, and I believe that's one of the great problems in America today is that we have multiple generations now who receive no consequences for their actions when they were young, and so they don't want to receive consequences for their actions when they are older. Parents, you have this sacred responsibility of of teaching your children right from wrong through discipline. Hello. 
When we chasten as parents, please understand we're not punishing our children. The root of punishment is the same for the word punitive. We punish criminals. Sometimes the lines might be blurry between those two concepts. We punish criminals. We discipline children. The root of punishment is the same as the word punitive, which is a legal term for the dealing with of criminals. The word discipline is the same root for discipleship. And rather than meaning punishing, it means teaching. And so parents, when we discipline our children, we're not punishing them, we're teaching them, which tells me much about the disposition of a parent in chastening. It's not hurting them. It's not to be angry at them or cruel to them or harsh to them. But no, we're teaching our children right from wrong through giving them consequences for their actions. God is this way, and so one of the causes of suffering that we experience in this world is chastening. Hebrews 12, 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? If ye be without chastisement, whereof all, that is, all, our, all of his children are partakers... Then are you bastards and not sons? That's not a cuss word. It's a legal term for a disowned child. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? In other words, you respect your dad if he worked hard and he loved you and he chastened you and it wasn't out of anger or abuse, it was out of kindness because he was trying to teach you right from wrong, you respect and you reverence him where you ought to. How much rather should we respect God and keep his commandments? You never outgrow God's chastening. You know, if at nearly 40 years old, I have 152 days until I turn 40, I'm going to enjoy every single day in my 30s that I have left. If my dad showed up at nearly 40 years old and began to chasten me, it, it would probably be a brawl because I grew up. I left father and mother to cleave unto my wife. That authority is not there. I'm a new household with my wife. But I never outgrow God's chastening. As long as I live in the world as his child... God will chasten me when I do that which is wrong. You never outgrow God's chastening. They, our fathers, verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but He, God, for our profit, that we might be partakers of His holiness. Chastening is for the purpose of God's children to behave in a more holy way. Now, to remind you, as the writer of Hebrews does in Hebrews 12, 11, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. It's not fun when you're being chastened, whether it be by your parents or by God. But it's grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. If you're under the chastening of God... Don't let it despair you. Don't let it afflict you. Lift up the hands that hang down in the feeble knees. 
Understanding that God is not destroying you. He's teaching you. He's teaching you. We experience suffering in this world because of chastening. Sometimes that suffering begins and ends in our conscience. It's not that when I do something that's wrong, the next day the bank account is empty, the cars all blew up, and the house had a tree fall on it. Sometimes when we do wrong, we experience mental anguish, and that anguish is chastening. The guilty conscience, isn't it terrible when you feel condemned before God and you no longer feel right with Him? The biblical doctrine of assurance is taught so often in both Testaments, but exceedingly in the New Testament, when you feel to be right with God. How terrible is it when our hearts condemn us and afflict us? So many times that's chastening. I've done something that's not right, and because of that, I suffer in soul and in heart and in mind. I heard it pointed out in a message recently that the more you grow in grace, the quicker that sting is after the infraction. In other words, there were days where in my personal life I was so spiritually immature that it might be a week, it might be a month, it may be years before I remember that I had done something that was wrong and feel bad for it. But it seems like the more close you grow to God, the quicker that anguish and affliction enters your mind after doing something that's wrong. We also suffer, number four, because of the sins of others. Again, sin doesn't exist or occur in a vacuum. Sometimes you suffer because someone in your life Someone near you has sinned. Parents, let me just exhort you very, very clearly how great of a shame it is when children suffer because of the sins of the parents. When a father mistreats his wife and children or is given to fits of anger or drunkenness or betrays his wife with another woman. And that can occur from a woman to her husband and her children. We suffer because we have fellow citizens who are given to sin. If you've ever had someone mug you or rob you or hit you or strike you or scare you or bully you, you've suffered because of the sins of others. We suffer many times because of the sins of others. Number five, we suffer persecution as Christians. According to Christ, every single one of us will suffer tribulation in this world to one degree or another, at one time or another, because we belong to Him. In John 15, in this run of chapters, beginning in chapter 14 and ending in a prayer in chapter 17, Jesus is preaching to His apostles and the other disciples who were there present at the last Passover when he instituted communion directly before his arrest, his trials, and his crucifixion. And he's warning them of all that they're going to experience, the fact that he's going away, but he's going away to prepare a place for them, and he'll come back and receive them unto his, himself. He'll send the Spirit to be with them in like manner as he has been 
He begins that message with, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He's comforting them despite the fact that they don't understand what he's going through, what he's about to go through, what's about to happen in his life and in the world. In John 15, he tells them that they've not chosen him, but he has chosen them. In verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, I've chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. John 16, verse 33. The things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace, in the world ye shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We suffer inescapably various forms of tribulation in this world because we love Jesus. Any teacher who takes the word and tells you that if you would only follow him, all of your troubles in this world would go away, any teacher that sells you that is selling you a bill of goods, as it were. Because Jesus himself said, you will suffer the way that I have suffered. For my name's sake, you will suffer because you follow me. And lastly, sometimes we are called upon to suffer for special purposes, for the glory of God. And I confess to you that these are more rare than the other types of suffering, but they are most certainly one cause of suffering in the lives of God's children. Jesus passed by, John chapter 9, and saw a man which was blind from his birth. The disciples asked him, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Let that question sink in a moment. Did this man sin that he was born blind? How could he commit a sin so grievous in the womb that he would be born blind? Reading commentators and historians on this, there were factions of the Jews in the first century who believed in anything from generational curses to being reincarnated and all sorts of other crazy ideas that are not biblical. Maybe this man sinned in a past life, they might be asking. But that's not the case. We're appointed unto, it's appointed unto man once to die. We don't enter this world again, praise God, when we leave this world as God's children. That's it. We're done with this place. We're delivered. The disciples asked, though, who sinned? They had a skewed view of suffering. And by the way, I would just interject at this point, after giving you several causes of suffering in the world, that if we view suffering through the lens only of one of those types of suffering, it gives us a warped view of reality. These people thought the only reason suffering ever occurred was because someone did something wrong. That's not the only cause for suffering in the world. You've read several causes thus far. 
Jesus says, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. And then Jesus heals this man of his blindness. Jesus suffered this man to be born blind so he could come along and give him sight. Do you think the man minded? The first thing he saw with his natural eyes was the face of Christ. His story is recorded in Scripture, and as we'll see in a moment, the power of God rested upon him. No, he did not mind what had happened to him. Another example would be Lazarus. They come to Jesus and they say, Lazarus, your friend, he whom thou lovest, in John eleven three, is sick. Jesus heard that. He said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. They come to Jesus and they say, Lazarus is sick. Jesus says, This sickness isn't unto death, but that God should be glorified. Do you know what happened? Jesus tarried four days and Lazarus died. But Jesus goes to Lazarus. They begin to say, Lord, if you were here, he wouldn't have died. That's true. That's why he tarried. Jesus goes and he says, roll away the stone. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes forth. They unbind him from the grave clothes and immediately they worship God and the enemies of Christ begin to conspire to kill him because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Sometimes, child of God, we suffer even in this world because of special purposes for the glory of God. And I just remind you, in those cases, if you're called upon to suffer for such a reason, those are the moments you feel the power of God the most in your life. Lazarus was dead, and Jesus raised him from the dead. There's a very limited number of people recorded in Scripture who were raised from the dead. And Lazarus is among those, if not the most famous of those. Coming to the last thought that we share with you today, we look at trials as an opportunity to grow rather than grumble. And if you write notes, that's a statement to record. We are to look at trials as an opportunity to grow rather than an opportunity to grumble. I have Facebook and Twitter, and I happen to know that when trials and afflictions burn in the world around us, usually we do more grumbling than we do growing. Exhibit A, I present unto you the coronavirus pandemic. Exhibit B, I present unto you the civil unrest. Exhibit C, I present unto you the 2020 election. I could go on. There are many more letters in the alphabet. We should look at trials as an opportunity to grow regardless of the cults. Is it simply common to man? Something we all share in this world because we live in a sin-cursed world? Is it because of my choices? Is it because of chastening? Is it because of the sin of others? Persecution, perhaps? or even if I'm suffering for a special purpose for the glory of God, we should look at trials as an opportunity to grow. First of all, trials burn away impurities. We gave a sermon on this back in October, and 
I would refer you back to that sermon if you want to hear more on that subject. Suffice it to say, in 1 Corinthians 3, the foundation of that church was Christ. Paul and Apollos and other men had built on that foundation. If we build gold, silver, or precious stones, the fires of life shall burn around it and purify even that which we have built. But if we build upon that foundation, wood, hay, and stubble, the fires of this life will consume it and burn it up. But there's a principle contained therein. Fire, which symbolizes the trials of this life, purify one way or another what we go through as a church and what we go through as individuals. And that's why the Apostle Peter refers to them in 1 Peter 1.7 as fiery trials which try our faith. Faith being much more precious than gold. Also, trials teach us truth if we're looking and if we're listening. First of all, what did the writer of Hebrews say chastening teaches us? Well, that we would be more holy. And so, we learn holy living through chastening. We learn how to walk in a more holy way through chastening. You who were chastened by your parents growing up, I learned not to do a lot of things as a child because my parents chastened me. There were some things that they eventually just gave up, like making straight A's on the report card. I made straight A's until they started counting homework as a part of the grade. If you just gave me the test, I'll ace the test, but please do not give me busy work. In first grade, my mother's there helping my teacher because she was that good mom, the one mom that's always there. You know, PTO, PTA, always after school, always up there with snacks. She's helping the teacher clean out the classroom at the end of the year. And lo and behold, she pulls out a book on the bookshelf beside my desk and all the busy work fell out of it because I had opened the book, put the busy work in it and put it back in the library or in the bookshelf all year. I had filled books with busy work. The teacher was like, I was wondering where the assignments went. They weren't on his desk. He didn't take them home. They just never got turned in. I thought I lost them. That, that never really grew out. That was still me in school. And some things they finally gave up on. But there are a lot of things that I learned not to do as a kid because my dad got a hold of me for doing it. Don't do that. I'm going to tell you, as a Winslet kid, I pushed the envelope. You learn in trials. We learn our frailness in moments of affliction and moments of trial. We feel to be invincible, don't we? The older you get, the less that's probably a part of your daily struggle, but even those of us, those of you that are on up in years, if I were to take a survey of those here that are over the age of 70, I imagine at least your wives would say that you still think you're 30 inside. In fact, I know some of you here who get chastened and scolded not only by the Lord, but also by their wives to slow down and stop doing so much. Not looking at anybody in specific to my right. I imagine when I, if I live to be 90 years old, I'm going to feel inside like I'm still 25. 
But it doesn't take but a little bit of getting tired and sore and sick to realize, you know, you're not 20 anymore. You're not 30 anymore. One day you're not 40 anymore. You get older and your your frailness suddenly becomes a lot more in view. Affliction serves that purpose in our lives. We learn how frail we really are through afflictions. We don't think we're frail. You know, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we're to trust in God. That passage from the Old Testament that's so widely quoted, we have confidence as Americans in our health, in our political system, in our constitution, in our military. We have all the confidence in the world in the flesh. And we ought to count every last bit of that as but dung, according to the book of Philippians. All of it. Our pedigree, where we belong, our nationality is all to be considered but something to be discarded. When you're in the middle of suffering, especially serious suffering, you realize exactly how frail you really are. Scripture uses so many different metaphors, our frame, worms of the dirt, dust, we are but dust, we are but flesh, we are but sinners. So many different metaphors teach our frailty. How's this one? The sheep of the shepherd. There's a funny video going around the internet of a sheep and the shepherd pulls it out of this crack. I don't know what in the world, it's a fault line or something. And he pulls the sheep out by the leg and the sheep starts bouncing off and jumps to go over it, jumps about a foot too far, lands right back in the fault line. Plop, and it's stuck. And I had the caption, this is exactly why as sheep we need a shepherd. Because we are frail. Because we are not powerful. Afflictions teach us that life lesson. Nothing shows us how frail and temporal we are like affliction. Suffering teaches us how to make better decisions, or at least it ought to. Some of us are a little more hard-headed than others. I have a friend. I will never tell you his name as long as he's living. He's a good, good, faithful Christian, but he has a problem with speeding, a major problem with speeding, as in to the tune of one week his church that he serves thought he was abducted because no one could get in contact with him. They called him. He wasn't there. He wasn't at home. They don't know where he's at. Lo and behold, he had one too many tickets, and they made him spend a couple of nights in jail. How embarrassing when the deacons come to find you, and they can't, and lo and behold, you're in jail for speeding. You know why you get tickets when you speed? To teach you not to speed. Afflictions teach us better decision-making. Reaping what we sow ought to cause us to want to sow better seed. If I'm all the time reaping drama or contention or health issues because of the things that I do, maybe the world's not out to get me. Maybe I need to make better decisions. You know, this is not, this is just a generic statement. So if you say, he's talking to me, well, I'm talking to everybody. I'm not talking to anybody, but I'm talking to everybody. The the old saying, if there's always drama, drama at home, drama at work, drama at church, everywhere I go, there's drama. Have you ever stopped to consider 
The common denominator? Rachel's mouth and stuff to me. Let me stop. <laughs> if everywhere I go there's drama, it may be me. <laughs> I'm just a little black rain cloud. <laughs> Suffering also teaches us life lessons about beauty. What? Some of the most beautiful moments in your life. Think about the birth of a child. That's not pleasant. I've witnessed that five times, and it was miserable for me. Four of the five, I fainted. I put a recliner up at the head of the bed. Do you want to cut the cord? I'm like... I don't even remember when Micah was born. I was grayed out for two minutes. I mean, it could have been some other kid for all I know. I can only imagine what it did to poor Rachel. Those are some of the most beautiful moments of your life, bringing those babies into the world. How about this one? Holding a scared child. Your child's upset. You know, things that little kids go through, to you, they are so trivial, are they not? But to them, it is literally the end of the world. Somebody stole my Play-Doh. They sell more, but it's my Play-Doh. And you just hold your little baby. That's a beautiful moment. But to them, it's an affliction. Holding the hand of a loved one in their final moments in this world. In the midst of that suffering, you find one of the most beautiful memories that you will treasure for the rest of your life. Suffering, afflictions, teach us to appreciate beauty. There are beautiful moments in suffering that we learn from. Suffering teaches us our dependence upon God. By virtue of of how helpless we are when we suffer. When David went to confront Goliath, did David have any strength of his own that he could use to slay the giant? Not a bit. That was an affliction. The entire military of the children of Israel was running and hiding from this guy who was nine to ten feet tall. They don't have guns in that day. I would have been throwing spears at the guy, maybe arrows. And the children of Israel are terrified of the man. David takes a sling and five smooth stones, and he goes and he withstands that giant to his faith, and he slays him by faith in the power of God. Saul tries to arm him with his armor, and he says, These things haven't been proved. One thing had been proved, his God... David had slain a lion and David had slain a bear. And he knew that no matter what he went up against in this world, if God was with him, he would be victorious. Think about Joseph and his affliction. Daniel and his affliction. Noah before the flood. Read Hebrews 11, the story of one man and woman after another who achieved great victories through their faith in God. What was their strength? Their strength was God. And in those afflictions, they learned, oh, how deeply did they learn how much they depend upon God. Lastly, as we 
struggle with affliction and suffering, we experience God's power more intensely than we do in times of ease. If I took a census of American Christians and I were to ask, do you want to experience the power of God in your life? Yes! Absolutely! I don't think it would be anywhere remotely close to a percent of people saying no. It might be 100%. Yes, I want to experience God's power in my life. Do you want to suffer? No. Back away slowly. But it's in suffering that we experience His power more intensely. And we'll continue this thought next week, Lord willing. Paul suffered more than any other gospel preacher that we've ever known of. He gives his sufferings in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He was whipped with 40 stripes, save one five times. He was beaten with rods three times. He was stoned and left for dead. He was shipwrecked three times. He floated a night and a day in the deep. He lists his perils of water and robbers and his own countrymen and the heathen, the Gentiles, in the city, in the wilderness, in the sea, and even among false brethren, in fastings and nakedness, hunger and thirst, cold, and beside that, all of the care of the churches. Paul suffered more than we all as preachers, second only to Christ. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul, in referencing a messenger of Satan that had been sent to buffet him, lest he be exalted above measure at visions and revelations, begged God, besought him three times that the messenger of Satan, the thorn in the flesh, might depart. You know what God said unto him? My grace is sufficient for thee. God's not telling him, get over it. He's not telling him to just roll up your sleeves, pull up your pants, and live with it. He's telling him, the solution to your suffering in this life is my grace. Grace is the solution. Grace isn't just so we stand before God in heaven. Grace enables us to live each and every day of our lives. As we read in John chapter 1, grace for grace, and I would say grace upon grace. Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. When we suffer affliction in this world, we experience the power of God so much more intensely that we grow and are strengthened as disciples because of the afflictions, the fiery trials through which we walk each and every day of our lives. I don't sign up for pain but when it comes my way, I understand that God is with me. He'll never leave me, nor will he forsake me. 
And so I shall not fear what man can do unto me. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you're always with us. Lord, we know that brothers are meant, given to us as gifts for adversity, but there's a friend that sticks much closer than a brother, and that is our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, who changes not, who always loves us, is merciful, and nothing can take us from his hand. Thank you, Lord, that we are kept secure in your grace. But not only have you given us grace to save, you've given us grace for living. And we just pray, Father, that we would be walking and abounding in that grace each and every day of our lives. Thank you, Father, for this hour of prayer. We pray that it's been edifying to your children. And we look forward to continuing this line of thought together next week. If it be thy will, forgive us of our sin and dismiss us in thy care, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.